oh my God, I lost a candidate that we've been trying to get in. This candidate really is who we need. And we've been recruiting them. And then some, whatever, insert expletive here, kept on misgendering them, right? Either called them he or a man like you or she or a woman like you, and they were not that gender. So this is really, really important to be very, very neutral about gender. That's Dr. Suzanne Wertheim, a linguist, anthropologist expert with over two decades of experience in the subject of inclusive language. Her recent book, The Inclusive Language Field Guide, Six Simple Principles for Avoiding Painful Mistakes and Communicating Respectfully, offers principles to guide all kinds of communication with all kinds of people. You are listening to Dear Human Resources, and I'm your host, Marie-Lane Germain. In this show, Dr. Wertheim talks about common interview language that causes companies to lose out on potential hires and on workplace language that can get you canceled. Good to have you on the show, Susan. Oh, it is a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So can you tell our listeners what a linguist anthropologist actually does? I can. So first, I'll, I'll apologize that my field has done some of the worst job of PR in the last century. So many other academic fields have people understand what they do, and we always have to explain ourselves. So linguists and linguistic anthropologists, we are experts at finding patterns. We find patterns, we identify patterns, and we name patterns. We dig into language, we dig into human interactions, and we dig up patterns that people maybe felt vaguely were there, but didn't really know, and they now can see them clearly. Now, my PhD is in linguistics, but then I switched over to linguistic anthropology, which is its own thing. It's a combination of linguistics and anthropology, so it's bringing together language and culture. And I look at what I call contextualized language use. So, for example, how does the way someone thinks about themselves, how do they think about the person they're talking to, how does this affect what they're saying or, or writing? And in particular, I find for workplace and workplace biases, for these analysis, I'm thinking a lot about what role is power dynamics playing and the power dynamics between the people involved, but how does that slot into how society is organized as a whole? So it's really from the level of what's going on to one person's mind, to what's happening in an interpersonal interaction, to what's happening at the institutional level, to what's happening at the macro social or societal level. We look at all of those things at once. It's quite extensive, actually. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> it sure is. So as a language expert, you are often solicited to talk to organizations about the way language in the workplace can affect employees, but also organizations. Can you give us some examples? Sure. And let me tell you that my examples are real world and they're recent, and many of them are gathered from my personal research, and I don't mean collecting stories that are out there on the internet. I mean, I've done a ton of what I call employee experience interviews. Sometimes they're after people have quit a job. Sometimes it's while they're still there, where I ask people very granular questions that never use the word bias. So let me give you an example. Before I give you examples, let me tell you how I got the data, because sometimes my data doesn't feel real to people. So I, I like to sort of lay the track and be like, this was all done in a very scientific way. The thing is that for a lot of people, they're at a what I call a data deficit when it comes to bias. They haven't had decades of biased interactions where bias was thrown at them. And so 
other people's experiences who have had decades of bias thrown at them often don't feel real because they haven't experienced it themselves. So there seems to be this element of unreality for them. They're like, but did it really happen? So I'm like, yes, it really happened. So let me just give an example of a question I ask. I'll say, is there a time you felt like someone treated you as lower than your actual position? Or is there a time you felt like people were treating you as more marginal or even an outsider when you weren't? So the answers I get spill out the most common expressions of uh, issues that I find in workplace interactions, which violate two of my inclusive language principles. One of my principles is show respect. Very simple, but a lot of people don't follow it. And another principle of mine is draw people in rather than marginalize them. Again, a very simple principle, but very hard to implement, it would seem. So one example I want to give you is talking about finding patterns and giving names to them. I found a pattern and I gave a name to it. And the name I gave to it is unconscious emotions. This is the thing that happens. I'll talk about only in the workplace. It happens outside of work too, where somebody will meet somebody new and make a snap judgment about the position they hold. And that snap judgment is wrong. They demote them to a position that is much lower, less prestigious, requires less education, et cetera. So I talked to a female engineer who had to literally physically move her desk. This is pre-pandemic, so everyone's in person. Had to move her desk away from her boss because everybody thought that she was his secretary or assistant. A female vice president that I interviewed was assumed to be an admin. A black tech worker badged into his company and was blocked from entering by a white colleague who demanded to see his ID, even though it was uh, he, he had badged in. So these were all ways that somebody was demoted out of their high-level position, prestigious position, and assumed to be lower or to not belong in their real position. I also collect a lot of examples of, I mean, I have a, a database, an examples database that's so full. And then I have you might you might understand this feeling. So many open tabs on my web browser that are supposed to go into the examples database, but they haven't quite made it in yet. Mm-hmm. But just a few examples are an Asian colleague of mine was told she was difficult and stop having these unseemly outbursts when she was just dissenting based on some information she had, whereas her white male colleagues were not told anything similar. One person complained to me that her colleagues didn't have her back. There was a meeting with the client and the client only talked to the men in the room, even though she was there because of her expertise. Asian Americans tell me how bad they feel when people say, your English is so good. They were born here. And uh, more subtle is the thing that happens. Well, you've probably seen this in academia a lot of the respect gap where male professors are referred to by their title, Dr. X, but women are referred to by their first name. So these are just a few sprinklings of examples that I have of how this stuff shows up in the workplace. Is that in your book? A lot of it is. Some of it isn't. So I'd like to talk about interview language. Sure. You say that some interview language causes companies to lose out on potential hires. Can you expand on that? I can. And what's fun for me is as an outsider, so I'm an outside consultant. I was in academia for a long time. I left academia. I did actually a a large uh, research project on natural language processing, and then I moved into anti-bias consulting. So it's been a very long time since I've been inside a company when I worked for Tiffintech, and then I was treated so badly that I got a PhD so people would take me seriously, right? Well, that's kind of sad when you think about it. You have to get a degree to be taken seriously. Yeah. 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 And um, 
when I went back and started consulting for tech, I'm like, it got worse, not better. It got worse. I was away for 12 years. It got worse. You know, it, it got worse. So for me, what's always interesting is having people come to me to say, I have a problem and I think you might be able to help me solve it. So people were coming to me. Why do I talk about interview language? Because people in recruiting who had good DEI knowledge or good slash bad lived experience where they had had bias thrown at them during interviews or in the workplace knew that I could create a workshop that would help the bad things happen less often. So the very first inclusive language workshop I was commissioned to give was to recruiters. And then we expanded it to talent acquisition for hiring managers and other people as well. So person brought me in and she's like, I cannot believe the stories I'm hearing. And so I'm like, tell me about the problem. So I'll, I'll go into my database and I'll go into my theory set, my linguistic anthropology toolkit, and I'll create a thing for you. So in my then since that time research, both with her and then with other people, all, all the ways that I gather data on what goes wrong in interviews. Here are just a few examples. When parental status is known, Mothers are asked if they're going to be able to travel or work late, but guess what? Fathers aren't asked, right? And that leads me to all kinds of misgendering and assumptions about gender, which is especially important now because during the pandemic, a lot of people had time to themselves, which was bad in some ways, but first, a lot of people, it enabled them to think more deeply about their gender identity and come to terms with the fact that they were not straightforwardly in the gender binary and who they were assigned at birth. So the number of people who understand themselves to be non-binary and or transgender has gone up significantly during the pandemic. So a lot of recruiters and hiring managers will look at a person and because they look like a biological gender, they look like they can identify the gender. Mm -hmm. They assume that they know that person's gender identity, which is internal, and they end up misgendering people. So I've had a few VPs or otherwise high up people in recruiting say to me, oh my God, I lost a candidate that we've been trying to get in. This candidate really is who we need. And we've been recruiting them. And then some, whatever, insert expletive here, kept on misgendering them, right? Either called them he or a man like you or she or a woman like you, and they were not that gender. So this is really, really important to be very, very neutral about gender when interviewing people because people withdraw their candidacy. They're like, how can I concentrate in a company if you can't even be bothered to make sure I'm not misgendered? It's at the time when you're supposed to be making the best impression. You're recruiting me and trying to bring me in and you can't even be bothered to gender me appropriately. And another thing that I think people don't think of as being related to language, but very much is, is names. You and I both have French names. Mine is a little more Americanized than yours, but I've lived my life with a low frequency name. And so I have a lot of lived experience of people not saying my name correctly. It's Suzanne and not all the things that people say. So one thing that people don't think about is, for example, when people fill out forms, there are forms that are not set up for the variety of names that are out there. Mm -hmm. Some names are very, very short, like ng, ng. Some names are very, very long, like my colleague Jenna Barches Lichtenstein. She literally can't fill out a lot of forms. People mispronounce candidates' names. They don't bother to check in on the spelling. They misspell candidates' names. They leave out diacritics, like the accent diacritic is a fancy linguistic term for the things that go above or below a letter that tell you how it's pronounced. We don't have them really in English, except for we have some words in French and names in French. So like Rene is spelled with an accent. I talk to Chinese people 
who have a white space in their name. So their name is part one, part two, but it doesn't have a hyphen and people will treat it like it's not their full name. So I have an acquaintance named Yi Shun. That's her name. And she is called Yi all the time by people who don't know her, but her name is not Yi, it's Yi Shun. And sometimes she cannot register on different website platforms. And I've got one more for naming, which is um, a woman I interviewed. Her name is Rose and she's Latina. And she she looks quite Latina. If you're going to stereotype, you can look so many ways as Latina. But if you're going to stereotype, like if you're in central casting, we need to cast Latina. Like it might look like Rose. She is <laughs> often called by interviewers and then colleagues, Rosa. Rosa. Yeah. Rosa. Because it seems more Latina, but it's not her name. Her name is Rose, mm-hmm. right? So people are like, oh, Latina equals Rosa. And she's like, no, it's Ro- like Rose. It's Rose. I'm born here. It's Rose. My name is Rose. So those are just a few examples. Actually, let me give you one more. So I've been talking about misgendering, and I work a lot in the tech sector. And I find that in STEM companies, there is this use it hasn't gone away as much as people think this use of masculine specific language as if it's gender neutral, but it's not. So I'll give you an example that was told to me. A female engineer was applying for a job. I've interviewed a lot of female engineers. So a lot of my data comes from them. So a female engineer is applying for a job and another open position uh, in the department would be the engineering director. So she's interviewing and that open role, they're just advertising for it. And people would say to her, okay, so when we get an engineering director, he's really going to mm. or a new engineering director. He's going to be the kind of guy who. And she was like, "Why in the world?" But I work for the company where they wouldn't ever conceptualize right. this non-existent person. This is a fictional, right? A perspective, a potential engineering director. If they can't even conceive that that person might not be male, what's my career going to be like at this company? And P.S. Guess who never hears that is the company. They just get a withdrawn candidacy or refusal. But people who've been insulted during an interview process, they're like, if you can't treat me with respect, why am I going to waste my time and energy educating you? I'm going to spend my energy on me and I'm going to go find a company that's more inclusive that will treat me well. That's right. Excellent examples. Thank you, Suzanne. So you said the workplace language can get you canceled in today's digital age. What do you mean by that? So the working world has changed a lot since I was a fresh-faced 21-year-old and went into tech, first as a sales and marketing admin, and then as a technical writer. And by the way, I was unconsciously demoted. People often thought I was the receptionist. And I was like, ooh, that's not great. And when I was a professor, people often thought I was not the professor. So also not great. So when I started, social media did not exist. The internet existed, but not generally. So in the years that I've been out and about in professional contexts, suddenly things that used to be internal or it would be hard to get them out in the world and popularly known, now that's not the case anymore. So a memo can be screenshotted, even if it disappears. An all-hands meeting can be recorded on a telephone or on Zoom or, you know, people can find ways. Things that it's not just people reporting, oh, somebody said this, they've got what they call the receipts and they can show it. And also there's platforms like Glassdoor where people can report what happened. Although I think that gets scrubbed a lot more than it used to. And Blind where people tell things or Twitter or wherever it's whatever it's called now, people will, when they feel offended and it's a bias related offense, it can feel very painful and people feel very angry and they take it to the streets. In particular, Things said by executives in all hands meetings or in internal comms out to the whole company 
really can get out there to the world. And a lot of executives, I work with executives and executive teams, and they tell me, I am really afraid of being canceled. I have this as a use case for the book. I'm like, okay, I'm writing a book for you, you know, like buy it when it comes out. But they're like, I'm so afraid of being canceled. Gen Z employees are holding executives to standards that are not the standards that they came up with. And in the summer of 2020, this was very clear where a lot of executives really fumbled or were silent when it came to talking about the murder of George Floyd, the experiences of their Black employees, if they had even multiple employees. I talked to a lot of people who are the only Black employee at their company, and they were asked to make statements, and they couldn't or they did, but needed a lot of coaching, and they came out very late, and they were clearly very nervous, and it was very scripted, and people lose a lot of trust in them. You know, like an example that was brought to me that I think didn't make it out to the media because we fixed it internally was a financial services company. And there were some executives. And when they were talking about sort of like avatars or personas of their clients, the Black people never had any money. They never Mm -hmm. had any money. It was only the white folks who were presented as the high wealth or whatever that, you know, they have specific names in financial services, but the wealthy clients were always seen as white. And so it can come out very subtly. But this is enough to get a brand reputational hit. I mean, canceled is not my favorite word. I like it because people become afraid and then they hire me. So I'm not going to stop saying it. (laughs) I'm not going to stop saying it. I think there's a difference between a well-intentioned inadvertent mistake that happens the first or second time. And then the thing is that somebody has to be open to learning. So an inadvertent mistake that keeps on happening, I think is okay to get canceled for because it shows that the people who you're harming with your language aren't important to you, that you don't care enough about them to put in some effort and do better. And so if people are going to call you out for that messaging, I am okay with that. I don't like a call out for one inadvertent thing because somebody was born and raised in a system. I'm so to be very American about it. I'm Gen X. Mm -hmm. So I was told in school, and I talk about this in the book, the stuff I was taught about gender was just wrong. I was taught that gender is only a binary, that you can say the opposite sex because you're either male or female. There were so many things I didn't know about intersex people. I didn't know about transgender people. I didn't know about non-binary people, whereas people growing up not too far from me who spoke languages like uh, Native American or First Native languages, a lot of them have words for third sexes or non-binary people. Anyway, it's not your fault that you were programmed by your culture to think about the world in a certain way, but you are accountable to stay up to date and make sure you're not doing harm with your language. Well said. Now let's look at solutions. What do you suggest uh, people do to avoid being canceled because of language? I mean, this sounds really bad, but read my book. Um, (laughs) I mean, but seriously, like my book is reverse engineered. When I started laying out the chapters, which I then had to relay out because my acquisitions editor said, I love the idea of your book. You cannot have a 29 chapter book. He's like, this is too much. I'm like, but a lot of them are three pages long. They're like internet speed. And he explained to me why you cannot do that. But one reason it was so, I like to call it completist. You know how professors can just, I'm like, I'm like, I want everyone to have all the information. I wrote down a list of all the problems that people brought to me. And then I shoved as many solutions as I could in the book, explaining the problem and then explaining how to fix it. So literally the easiest way, I mean, is to read my book. Let me explain why my book and not other resources out there, because if there were good resources, I would just point people to them. Okay. Before Uh, you do that, give us the name of your book again. Oh, yeah, sure. It's called The Inclusive Language Field Guide. And then the subtitle is 
Six Simple Principles for Avoiding Painful Mistakes and Communicating Respectfully. I literally had to pick up my book to read it because I always forget what it is. People tend to talk about inclusive language based on identity as a starting point, right? And so they'll say, here's this group of people, they're a stigmatized identity, they've been historically kept from power, they've been marginalized, they've been excluded. Here are some words that are used when people talk to them or talk about them that are bad. Here are words to use in their place. So that's how it generally goes. So people end up with long lists and sort of historical and identity-based explanations. But that didn't work for my clients for a few reasons. One is that those words very often change. Another is if you learn about one group, you can't apply to the next group, right? You're, you can't keep on going. And then a third is I've got a lot of global clients and a lot of these things are very U.S. specific. So one of the problems with U.S. DEI work is people will treat the U.S. as if it's everywhere. But because I come from anthropology and I've done research in three languages on two continents, I know that's not the case. So I needed something globalizable. So I say read my book because I've got these six principles that are based on behavior. What are the universals of human behavior that make interactions go well, and then conversely, that make interactions go badly? And then you populate the specifics with your specific language and your specific culture. And I give American examples, but they can be applied in many other places. Can you give us a teaser on those principles? Absolutely. They are reflect reality, show respect, draw people in, incorporate other perspectives, prevent erasure, and recognize pain points. If your language follows all of those principles, which by the way, are very simple. They're a distillation of 25 years of research and throwing things up against the wall and see what people have uptake for. They sound very simple, but like many things, simple things, when you're like, oh, how do I start applying it in my life? They get complicated, which is why I had to write a book and not just come on podcasts and list the six principles and leave. How can HR fine-tune its own language to communicate with employees? So one thing is put in the effort to follow the six principles and do the activities that are in my book. So language skills take time. So you and I have both learned languages probably as teens or adults, and we know that you have to practice a little bit every day in order to learn new language skills. Even within your own native language or languages, it's the same thing. So I've given these activities in every chapter that covers a principle. I have three activities you can practice five minutes a day, or 10 minutes once a week to get your skill set up. And I wrote this book very much for HR. I have a great resource in my book that is designed for people who communicate with employees, and it's called an inclusion checklist. And a lot of people were very nervous, and they found out they'd forgotten somebody in their comms, and then they got called out, and it was almost a scandal, right? So like a pilot checklist, where a pilot will go around the plane and make sure things are safe, you check everything before every flight, I've got an inclusion checklist that people can customize for their own things and make sure that as they're writing policies, as they're writing comms to employees, as they're adjudicating a problem that came up between two employees, they can use this inclusion checklist to make sure everybody is being taken into consideration. And then the other big suggestion I have for HR, based on, again, my research, is to avoid using a linguistic distortion that I talk about in the book that I call softening language. So softening language is a distortion where problematic behavior is described in a way that makes it sound reasonable. And the reason why it, it's done this way is usually because a person has power. So I have so many examples where people have complained to me or generally on the internet about problems with HR. So let me give you a few examples I, I teed up for you. 
Someone comes to HR to report sexual harassment and is told boys will be boys or take it as a compliment. And I don't mean a long time ago. I mean the 2020s. Someone comes to HR to report, and that's in a male-dominated company, but a female HR rep for that one. Someone comes to HR to report a series of racially and ethnically biased comments that he has been making a list of. I know the list. They are bad comments. Bad. Involving words like wetback to describe people, Mm. not even from Mexico, but from uh, Central America and ghetto to describe his uh, colleague's neighborhood and other things. So he comes to HR to report them and he's told, oh, he's actually a good guy. He didn't really mean anything by it, right? There's the softening language. Or somebody comes to say, oh, I'm getting these questions from my colleagues and they're so intrusive and really inappropriate. Like, um, how do you put on pants and can you have sex? And the HR person says, oh, they're just curious. You're the only wheelchair user in the company and they just want to know more. So as someone who works with employment lawyers, I live with an employment lawyer, I help employment lawyers bring cases, I can be an expert witness. This is a way that HR causes problems for the employee reporting the problematic language because they leave feeling very dissatisfied and angry and may take it out and complain more generally to colleagues or whatever. So we've got a lowering of the trust in the company, but it actually makes a really strong case for a discrimination and harassment lawsuit when HR dismisses a complaint using softening language. It makes it much, much easier for an employment lawyer to make a really strong case against your company. And I see my work as really trying to prevent those lawsuits because they're not good for anybody. Nobody likes them. They're expensive. They're exhausting. They're bad for everybody involved. So if we can stop it, I'm going to say HR avoiding dismissing the reports of problems that are brought to you with softening language and having empathy for the person who's doing the problematic stuff and instead thinking about feedback and appropriate disciplinary action. I think that's one of the best things you can do, even though I know that it's going to be challenging. Let's just say challenging. The question I, I can think of of someone who would oppose what you're saying is, you know, where do you draw the line? Do you have to be careful about every single word you use? Right. Well, and that's exactly why I have the principles, because there are some people who do what in linguistics we call as hypercorrect. When we look at child's language acquisition, you'll see that children will take their learning a new rule and then they overextend it. Right. And so they say make really very cute grammatical mistakes. Like so they'll call themselves you because they know that they get called you. And so they think that you is for them and they don't realize that when it's their turn to talk, they refer to themselves as I, right? That's hypercorrection. Well, the same thing happens for stuff around racial bias, gender bias, uh, sexual orientation bias. People will get, especially around race, very, very nervous. And they'll say, that's not appropriate language. And they'll call things out. And that's one of the main reasons why I created these six principles. They're also a checklist and they're guardrails to keep you in line for a discussion. So not everything that people say is problematic is actually problematic. And I see the principles as a way to show your work. So if somebody says, you can't say that, you can say to somebody, it's not clear to me why this is problematic. I'm evaluating it and it seems okay. Can you explain? And sometimes they'll find the thing, oh, you haven't incorporated other perspectives. You forgot about this person. Or you didn't recognize pain points. For you, this this term is okay. But if you come from this history, this is actually a problematic term. So it's best to use something else. So it might point to a problem or you might go through all six and somebody says, oh, I can't find it. And then I think it's okay to say, all right, then we can say this is not problematic language and move on rather than endlessly circling through uh, very uh, navel-gazing 
conversations that don't really go anywhere. Well, thanks for your insights and fascinating discussion, Suzanne. It was great having you on the show. And it was so great to be invited and I loved your questions. And thank you so much for having this podcast and for inviting me to be a guest. It was a real pleasure. Support for this show comes from Western Carolina University, a campus of the University of North Carolina system with the technical assistance of Kelly Minnis.